The following is a message from Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia. For more information about the ministry of Christ the King, please visit us at ctkroanoke.org. Well, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Christ the King. Uh, if you are a guest or a visitor, welcome. Uh, we're glad that you're with us. Uh, my name is Penny, and uh, I'm the senior pastor here, and uh, it is good for us to join together to uh, be able to come and worship God and to sing praise to Him and to come to His Word. And um, if you are new with us this morning, uh, you're joining us uh, very early in a sermon series. This is only the second sermon in a series looking at the book of Romans. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Romans chapter 1. We're going to be looking at the second half of chapter 1 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the chairs in front of you, and we'll also project the passage on the screen in just a moment. Um, but if you weren't with us last week, it, it's probably good for you to be reminded or to hear some of what we talked about. You see, last week, Paul introduced us to this book of Romans by telling us about God's salvation about the salvation that only comes through him, he told us that the source of salvation is Christ, that the scope of salvation is the nations, and that the power of the gospel, the message of salvation, reveals God's righteousness. And if you were with us last week, you remember that, that as Paul established God's righteousness, as he was talking to us about it, that he was showing us our need for God's righteousness. That all of us are in need of his righteousness in order for salvation to come. And Paul is continuing with that idea this week. Our need for God's righteousness. In fact, beginning in verse 18 of chapter 1, going all the way to chapter 3, verse 20. We're, we're not covering all of that this morning, by the way. Um, that would be a lot. We're, we're going to take that up over the next few weeks. But, but going from 118 to 320, this is a section in which Paul is demonstrating to us our need for the gospel. Why we need God's grace. Why we need his righteousness. And so let's follow along in our reading, beginning in verse 18. I'm going to read to the end of chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse." For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, 
God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And as we come to it, we ask that you would help us to see ourselves, to see our sin, and to see you, Lord, clearly and rest in your grace. To do these things, we need your help, and so we ask that your spirit would help us, that your spirit would help me so that my words would honor you. Help us so that we would be attentive to your word, and that, Father, that we would see ourselves and you clearly, and we would be drawn unto you. So we ask that you would meet with us and that you would work, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So many of you know that this summer, while I was on sabbatical, one of the things that my family did was we uh, traveled out west and saw some of the national parks out there. We took in arches and Canyonlands, Zion and Bryce and Capitol Reef, and we concluded our trip by looking at the Grand Canyon, spending three days there. And it was wonderful, I have to tell you. It was glorious. I mean, they're, they're beautiful. The national parks are incredible, right? Like, Zion is just, it's, it's another world. All these places, it felt like we were on another planet, and yet they were only just a short flight away from us. It was beautiful and wonderful, and we loved being out there. And each one of these parks is very unique. They have their unique rock formations, like the Hoodas of, the, of Bryce Canyon, or, or the, beautiful, uh, the beautiful canyon, the Narrows at Zion. All of them are very unique, and yet, despite all the differences, all the rock formations, the little bit of water in some, or the lack thereof in others, the little bit of trees that we saw in one, or, or just the desert in others, even though they all had their unique differences, there was something that we saw at every single one. And that was signs of warning. <laughs> Everywhere we went in these national parks, there were signs of warning. Warning us about the heat, because, you know, it's Arizona and Utah, so it gets a little warm there. <laughs> Right? Warning us about the heat. Warning us to make sure that you drink plenty of water. Warning us about falling off the edge of Angel's Landing in Zion like many people have. Warning us about not driving down certain roads in Capitol Reef because the rains might come and sweep, sweep your car away. But the warning sign that I remember the most and that stood out to me the most was this one at the Grand Canyon. And why it stood out to me was because it looked so unprofessional. It looked like a child had drawn it. It, it was this stick figure of this man or, or woman bent over and getting sick. <laughs> it was so strange to me because it looked so unprofessional and it looked so out of place from all the other signs that we had seen. But there it was at the very beginning of a trail that descended to the Colorado River at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. Now, that sign was there, <clears throat> excuse me, because without that sign, it would be very easy to be standing on the rim of the canyon to look down into it and to, to think, you know, it, sure, it's going to take a little bit of effort to get down there. 
It's going to take some exertion to get back up. I'm going to need to drink plenty of water and maybe take some food with me. But, but you know, I've hiked McAfee's Knob. <laughs> and I've done Sharp Top. <clears throat> I mean, it might be a little bit harder, but, but really it can't be that much harder, right? I mean, these signs of warning, they're, they're for other people. They're not really for me. But you see, what you realize is that standing at the top <clears throat> and looking down, what you don't realize is how steep the ascent really is. And that most people, the vast majority of people, cannot get all the way down and all the way back up in one day. Many people, not aware of how hard it might be, they actually are medevaced out of the canyon or they succumb to heat exhaustion, and they put themselves in danger, danger that just moments before they had no idea even existed. And so there's signs of warning. And that's what this passage is. This passage is a sign of warning. You see, last week we heard about the power of the gospel and God's righteousness to save. And that is something that we want to focus our attention on, right? We, we love God's grace and his mercy and his salvation, and we want to focus on it. But, but in focusing on it, we might forget to look at God's righteousness that brings judgment. You see, that's the other side of the coin, you see, in these verses, Paul is warning us about God's righteousness that brings judgment, not just salvation. We hear it in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man. You see, because of God's righteousness, he doesn't ignore unrighteousness. He doesn't ignore ungodliness. He actually moves against it. And so before we can start presuming upon God's grace, or before we start feeling too full of our spiritual ability, Paul reminds us and warns us about the danger of sin. And what he says is that in our sin, the unrighteous will suppress the truth. That's what he says at the end of verse 18, the ungodly, the unrighteous, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. Now, that language of suppress, it has the connotation of holding down or hindering, of hiding away or pretending that something's not there. And what is being hidden, what is being ignored is the truth of God, namely his eternal power and divine nature that's evident in creation. That's what Paul says in verses 19 through 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Paul is pointing us to general revelation. And general revelation is this, is it's, it's when we look at the creation Right? We look at the sun and the moon and the stars. We look at the mountains and the valleys. We hear the rush of the ocean and we hear the babbling of the brook. These things point us to the truth of God. They point us to the fact that there is a God. They testify to his power. You see, as we were walking through those national parks, as we're walking through the narrows at Zion, and we're looking up at the canyon hundreds of feet above us, right, these canyon walls, you, you're filled with awe and wonder. 
As we looked out over Bryce, I remember Mead, all she just kept saying was, it's so beautiful. It was on repeat. That's what she said again and again and again. It's so beautiful. And it was beautiful because we saw that it was God's hand that made it. It was God's hand that formed it. It was God's power that created it. You see, general revelation points to his power. And you don't have to go to Zion or Bryce or the Grand Canyon to see it. We see it here. The mountains and the valleys, the birds that fly overhead and the things that creep on the earth. They point to the glory of God. That's what Psalm 19 tells us, right? The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. That's what creation does. It tells us about God, but, but it doesn't tell us everything about God. You see, we don't just need general revelation. We need special revelation, God's word. You see, the creation tells us enough about God's word that we're held accountable. That's why Paul says that we are without excuse. So in other words, what Paul is telling us is that as we look at the world, if we say, as we look out at the creation, that there is no God, what we are doing is suppressing the truth about God and dishonoring him. And when that happens, we are ultimately seeking to live independently of God. And we are substituting the goodness of God for the foolishness of idolatry. That's where Paul takes us, <clears throat> excuse me, in verses 21 through 23. <clears throat> excuse me. He says, They became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now, we know that in the ancient world, and even in some parts of our world today, that people will take rock and stone and wood and they will carve little idols, right? And they'll place them down and they'll bow down to them and worship them. They'll say, this is your God, right? They make things with their hands and claim they're gods. We see this in the Old Testament, in Exodus, right? When they melted down the gold and they made the golden calf, and what did they say? Here is your God. We see it throughout the Old Testament as the pagan religions would worship these idols. We see it in the New Testament as Paul goes into these various cities of the ancient world to proclaim the gospel. They were worshiping these idols. And in, to our ears in our modern day, this might sound antiquated and superstitious and foolish. Because I would venture that none of us just Stab in the dark here. None of us have this little wooden idol that uh, sits at our front door so that as we go out every morning, it's like, hey, honey, don't forget to bow down before you go to work, right? If you do, I'd love to talk to you afterwards. <laughs> <clears throat> that'd, be a, that'd probably be a good, helpful pastoral conversation for us to have. But, um, but no, we don't do that, right? We are way, way too sophisticated for that kind of stuff. No, you see, instead of idols of wood, what we have are idols of power and control and peace and acclaim, idols of romance and success. You see, idolatry is just giving our hearts to anything other than God. Paul says in verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, maybe even worshiping themselves. 
Martin Luther said that whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God. And y'all, that is suppressing the truth about God. We might think that whatever it is that we are giving ourselves to, whether it be romance or success, whether it be peace or power, that it is going to give us freedom and independence and control. Because let's be honest with us, those are the things that we desire, aren't they? Freedom? Don't tell me what to do. Control? Let me get my hands around my life. Power? We might think that that's what these things will do, but actually suppressing the truth of God makes us a slave to these things. And the idols, whether they are statues or the idols of our heart, they are not benevolent. And y'all, they are not gracious. They are masters that are cruel and calloused and whisper lies that lead only to death. And so Paul warns us. He warns us about the unrighteous life of suppressing the knowledge of God. But Paul also warns us about the consequences of suppressing that knowledge, and the consequences are that we are handed over to unrighteousness. That's what we hear three times in verses 24, 26, and 28. God gave them up. God handed them over. And how, what is God giving them up to? What is he handing them over to? Well, he tells us the lusts of their hearts, to dishonorable passions, to a debased mind. You see, part of God's judgment and wrath is giving people the thing that they think they want. Now, when we think about God's judgment, most of us probably only think about it in terms of the judgment to come, right? Because we know that there is a day coming when Jesus is going to return and every single man, woman, and child is going to stand before him. And those who are wicked and unrighteous, he he will bring judgment upon them. But those who have received his grace will be welcomed into his presence. And we think about that day as, as a day far, far off, right? Probably don't think much about it in our daily lives. It is a day that is far, far off, but what Paul is indicating here is that 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 day is not just a day to come, it is, but that there is judgment even today. That's why in verse 18 he says the wrath of God is revealed, not just in the future, but it's revealed today. And it's demonstrated by God giving us the desires of our sinful hearts. That's what we see in verses 24 through 32. It is a list of unrighteousness. And in verses 26 through 27, Paul focuses on sexual immorality and homosexuality specifically. You see what he says? For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now it is clear what Paul's talking about. He's talking about homosexuality. And there are some in our day who are um, trying to make this a little more palatable because, I mean, let's just be honest, this, this is not a couple of verses that are very popular in our day. And Paul, or people trying to make this a little more palatable to our um, modern ears, want to try to argue that what Paul's concerned with here isn't actually homosexuality at all, but it's about promiscuous homosexuality. 
that, that what Paul is concerned about is monogamy within whatever sexual relationship one might be engaged in. But that's clearly not what he's talking about. It's an attempt to twist what God's word is saying to make it sound reasonable to our modern day. Now, what Paul is doing is he is rooting his argument in creation itself. He's not saying that this is a cultural accommodation. He's not saying that this is just something that arose in the Roman or Jewish day. He's saying that this is part of God's good creation. He uses the language contrary to nature. Literally, it is against nature. And so what he's saying is that homosexuality is actually a violation of God's created order. And to embrace homosexual activity or thoughts or desires is to reject God's good order for sexuality. And we know what his good order is, don't we? I mean, from the very beginning, God created man, male and female. And he gave the woman to the man, and they were to be united together, and they complemented one another. And what did God say? They were united together and made one flesh. And it was after that, right, that God says, it is very good. That sexuality within the confines of a monogamous male and female relationship, one man, one woman marriage, sexuality is actually very good. It is beautiful and right. It is a gift from God. Jesus himself affirms this relationship in Matthew 19. And we need to say that. We need to acknowledge that. You know, when, when we come across passages that tell us not only of the, the, the judgments that God is bringing, when he speaks of sin, we need to acknowledge those. And we need to acknowledge the goodness too, right? That sex in its right confines is good. It is something that God has given us. It is not something that, that is to be treated in prudish ways. It is a gift from him. And sex outside of marriage, however it might take it, whatever form it might express itself, between a, a husband and a wife, is exchanging the truth of God for lies and is worshiping our own desires. That's what Paul's telling us. But Paul doesn't just stop with sexual immorality and homosexuality. He goes on and lists 21 other sins that God gives the unrighteous over to. Did you see them? There's three groups of them. The first is the four words that describe generally human sin, unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. Then we have five sins that are modified by the phrase full of. You see them? Envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. And then we have the final 12. Gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And what do all these deserve? Well, in verse 32, Paul tells us they deserve death. Now, if you're familiar with your Bible and you're familiar with Romans, this shouldn't come as a surprise to you because we know in Romans chapter 6 that Paul writes that for the wages of sin is death. But I think that even as we acknowledge this fact, that what death earns us is, what sin earns us is death, even as we acknowledge it, I think that sometimes we can think about it only in a theoretical sense. 
You know, like, yeah, 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 sure. The wages of sin is death. And, and we'll speak of sin kind of generally, but, but do you see how specific Paul gets? He's not just talking about sin generally. He's getting very personal and very specific alongside sexual immorality or covetousness, envy, strife, gossip, slander, haughtiness, disobedience to parents. Sorry, kids. <laughs> Sorry, parents, because uh, we're, we have parents as well, right? Ruthlessness, right? He's getting very real, isn't he? Very personal, very specific. He's hitting awfully close to home. Because the truth is, is that every single one of us, when we read this, the 21 vices that come at the end and the two that preceded them, these 23 sins, we see ourselves, don't we? And Paul isn't making light of these things. He's not saying strife. Well, that's not a big deal. We live in the internet age. That's what you're supposed to do. Just complain and bring up all the things that you see are wrong or you perceive to be wrong in the world or in other people. He's not saying strife is no big deal, right? He, he doesn't say uh, gossip. No, it doesn't matter, you know. Just call a prayer request. We're all good. <laughs> or envy, right? Our culture doesn't seem to have any problem with any of these things, actually. I mean, who's it hurting, really? That's how we think about it. But you know who it hurts? It hurts us. It hurts me and you. Because the reality is, is that envy and gossip and arrogance and strife and haughtiness and sexual immorality and disobedience to parents and all those other things that Paul listed, what they deserve is death. Y'all, my sin, my sin, it deserves death. And so does yours. And that's not a light thing. Y'all, this is a heavy passage. My goodness, this is a weighty passage. And that is not lost on me. But we need to sit in that weight. We need to feel the weight of this passage. We need to feel the weight of it because the truth is, is that our sin isn't a game. It is real. And it has consequences. And we should feel the weight of our own sin and we should feel the weight of the sin of those that we love and we care about. Our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers, Our family members. And when we sit with the weight of this, what it should do is break our hearts. It should break our hearts that, that we ourselves have sinned in these ways against our Lord, and, and so have our neighbors and one another. And it should drive us to the cross. You see, we should take our broken hearts and the weight of our sin, and we should go straight to the cross, because the cross is our only hope. It is our only hope because in the cross, we see God's judgment and his wrath poured out, and it is not poured out on me and you, those who deserve it. We see God's wrath and judgment poured out on his son, the one who didn't deserve it. 
the one who didn't commit a single one of these sins. He takes that wrath and judgment that I and you deserve, and he takes it upon himself. We see judgment and wrath poured out on the cross so that those who confess our immorality and our strife and our foolishness and our slander, that those who repent of our sin, we will find grace. You see, that is the beauty of the gospel. That is why we move to the cross, because in the cross we see those people, ourselves included, who have fallen victim to these sins, who have committed them. We see in the cross God's power and his grace and his mercy is more powerful than our sin. You see, the beauty of it, friends, is that that there is no one so far gone in their sin that God's power is not strong enough to redeem them, to save them, me and you included. And so let the weight of this passage drive you to repentance. Drive you to repentance. Let it cause us to hate our sin to renounce our transgressions, to embrace the righteousness of God revealed in Jesus. And friends, let us give thanks for the grace that he has shown to us, a grace we do not deserve, a life that we have not earned, a gospel that saves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We thank you for your grace, your unmerited favor. Father, we thank you that you shower us with love and mercy, that you give us the very thing we do not deserve, and you do it because of your Son. And so we pray, Lord, that as we see, that you would open our eyes to our sin, show us our sin, not so that we would dwell in it, not so that we would stew in it, but that we would turn from it, we would flee from it, we would repent of it, and we would hold fast to your cross to the grace of Jesus. Lead us to repentance. Lead us in your truth and help us to walk in your grace. Do this for the glory of your name and for the good of our souls. And we pray this in Christ's name and God's people said together, amen.